have noticed the world has changed, right? And I think there's a few, obviously, what's going on in Ukraine is part of the conversation here. Um, but even before that, the United States signaled pretty clearly that they didn't want to be the world policeman anymore, right? Um, their position changed, and that changed geopolitics. And we've talked about Canada's defense before, and I, I think we've sort of taken advantage of the unique position that we're in and thought, well, we don't really have to do anything. We're living next door to the world's only superpower. Um, so we've neglected some things, and maybe it's time to, to, to rethink our position, not only on the money that we spend on defense, but the way we think about it in general. So we're going to have a conversation about just that now, and joining us is Hugh Siegel, um, a Matthews Fellow at the Queen's School of Policy Studies, former Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and a former Associate Cabinet Secretary in Ontario for Federal-Provincial Relations. Mr. Siegel, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with, with, with you and to talk to you and your listeners this morning. Now, we, we focus a lot on spending, and, and of course, that's that's a big part of this, and we fall far short of pretty much any target you can name when it comes to defense spending, don't we? Yeah, sadly, um, while we agreed, our government agreed at the First Minister's Conference, NATO First Minister's Conference, several years ago in Wales, that we would spend 2% of our gross domestic product on defense, uh, which is the target for all NATO countries. We're a little bit under 1.4%, which means we are probably about 28th or 29th in the world in terms of what we're spending on defense. And when you look at the size of our landmass, which is really the second largest mm -hmm. landmass in the world, and you look at where we are in terms of Russia being a neighbor, not 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 less than 12 miles from our northern Arctic borders. The notion that we would be getting away with uh, only maybe uh, at full strength. 60,000 members of the forces were now well beneath that because recruiting has fallen off and a lot of people have not stayed in the forces. They haven't been retained. They've left for a whole bunch of reasons we can discuss. Our ability now to not only discharge the duties our armed forces have under the National Defense Act for aid to the civil power, which you often see in terms of flooding and in terms of forest fires and in terms of hurricane events and even being helpful during the pandemic and meet our obligations to our European NATO allies who are committed to defending us as we are committed to defending them. It's pretty impossible for us to do all that, which forces the armed forces, and I think the men and women in our armed forces are amongst the best trained, the most loyal, the most hardworking, the most determined, the most capable, but it forces their leadership, the chief of defense staff and others, to make decisions about how many people we can actually deploy. And the bottom line is there are not enough people now for us to do the job, and that situation is getting worse and not better, and that's why we need to have, really need to have a national discussion about what kind of priority we're prepared to put on national defense and what kind of resources we're prepared to put behind that priority. So many things to get into there, but like you say, I think the overarching is, okay, where do we want to position this as a national priority? Because like I said in the intro, I think we've neglected it. We really and truly have and, and felt we're sort of in a, in a unique position where we can rely on others. We haven't put enough emphasis on it. Do you think we need to start there with a conversation of, okay, we need to re-examine what we do with our defense capabilities in this country overall? The fundamental question, which, which um, your question underlines, is, is really this. We have depended on our American allies, 
who have been quite generous in their support, both in terms of NORAD, both in terms of um, our forces and their forces training together and doing a whole bunch of constructive things to maximize the impact of our small force. The truth is, and we may see this in the in the midterm elections coming up in a few days, and who knows what will happen in the next presidential election, America has been, by and large, turning towards Asia as a primary area of focus because of their concerns about China, which means they have been withdrawing some of their interest in the Atlantic area, which, of course, from our perspective, relates to the Russian threat in our Arctic. Um, they have been talking openly about not spending as much as they mm -hmm. have in the past. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we capable of doing on our own, and more so on our own than has been the case in the past with our present capacity? Capacity, and I think our present capacity is substantially less. I mean, just think about this. We have two coasts. If you count the Arctic, we have three coasts. And essentially, we have about 12 frigates, six per coast, which could be deployed in any kind of defensive anti-submarine or other arrangement. We do have some new Arctic patrol ships to the government's credit, which has come along and have been made available, but they are not combat ships. They are patrol ships, which means that if the Russian Navy, which is heavily ensconced in their northern territories near ours, decided to get involved in an aggressive way, we really wouldn't have the capacity to respond meaningfully. That is simply not good enough for Canada. And I think both in terms of our, our long, long global view of our economic interests, our ability to defend our own territory, our own waters, and moreover, to make it, and this is the most important thing, nobody who is in support of more defense spending is in support of war. Right. Quite the contrary. The view is the stronger we are, the stronger we are deemed to be, the stronger our potential enemies see us to be, the less prone they will be to use military and aggressive tactics against us. And right now, I do not think we constitute much of a threat to anyone, nor much of a um, of, a, of, of an effort that would be seen to discourage uh, um, any um, meaningful aggression against us. And the other side of that conversation, Hugh, is it's not just what we can do in terms of defending ourselves. It's, it's, it's what we can do to be a, a going concern. Our, our forces have come out and said, you know what, you're, you're relying on us way too much to deal with uh, domestic issues and catastrophes and things like that. We're there to help, but it really takes us away from our primary goal as a fighting force. So, I mean, the recruitment is an issue, and then what we're asking them to do is an issue. Our focus needs to be realigned. Um, you're, really, you're really hitting a very important point. That is, when we rely on the Canadian forces, not, not as the last resort when other first responders are incapable or the nature of the disaster being faced, natural or otherwise, means it's all hands on deck. What we do is we take, we take the forces away from their combat training, we take them away from their foreign postings, we take them away from the skill sets which they need to have in a world which is dynamically different in terms of the technology of war, the technology of intelligence, the technology of artificial intelligence, and when we take them away from that, we weaken their ability to actually act as their primary fo focus as our national defense force. That's what they are established to do under the provisions of the National Defense Act. Now, anybody who I've ever met in uniform would say, hey, if the local community needs help because there's a forest fire and they call on us, we're there. 
Right. If they call, they're always eager to serve, and they always serve remarkably well. The problem is, A, we don't have enough people in the forces, and B, we really should, as a country that has this kind of broad territory, with all the various risks, we should really have a national first responders corps, which is not about military, but is about the other important support things which need to happen when we get something like um, a terrible hurricane or a terrible hard weather circumstance which really goes beyond the ability of the local capacity to address we should have a national force i think a lot of canadians would sign up they're not necessarily interested in military service but they would be interested in that kind of national rescue and support and i think you know it would be an opportunity for skills to be learned and it would be a further reflection of our regard for each other as canadians one um pressure point here that we haven't talked about specifically is china we 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 know that the arctic is an issue when it comes to russia but china is not something we can overlook Uh, that is something that we need to be aware of and we need to be willing to address and and frankly mr siegel up until now we've been so completely ineffective and, and downright weak in the face of China. Um, that's something else we should be looking at when we talk about our own defense. More importantly, it's 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 really essential for us to be um, totally brutal with ourselves about what the Chinese are in fact up to. Um, they have had their icebreakers in the in the Arctic. They have had um, a strong commitment to being viewed as an Arctic nation, and for them, it's about two things. It's about a transit course through the uh, northern waters that would allow them to ship back and forth to and from China in a more efficient way than the present routes provide. And secondly, it's about access to our natural resources, our minerals, our, our, our Arctic wealth, which of course is important for a country, which to be fair, the Chinese are always looking for new sources of natural resources because they don't have sufficient resources at home to deal with the massive population issues that they have to address. I don't think we have to view the Chinese as intrinsically hostile, but unless we make it perfectly clear that there are rules and there are limits to our tolerance and begin to work with them on that basis, we can expect them, as they have done in election interference and other things in this country, to engage in a way that advances their interests by diminishing ours. And no national government of any political affiliation should be allowed to stand back and say, well, you know, them's the brakes. That's not good enough. We have to engage. We have to invest. We have to be there. And we have to be seen to be there. Um, I really appreciate your time. We're chatting with Hugh Siegel. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you get out of here. Why does this never rise to the... Why, there's no, As you say, no political party ever raises this issue. It's never become a campaign issue. We've had three elections in the last few years, and this has never been something that any of the parties have talked about. How do we raise this up to the level of a national discussion? I think your first question um, about, you know, where are we with respect to the Americans? Where are the Americans with respect to their international defense commitments really answers your question. I think the vast majority of Canadians concluded, as you did when you put your first question, the Americans are our allies, they are our closest neighbor, no one's going to dare attack us, we don't have any threat they won't help us with, therefore we better spend our money on MRIs, we better spend our money on more hospital capacity, we better spend our money on more social programs. 
all of that is good, but we're being unrealistic about depending in perpetuity upon the Americans. That's where we have to have the frank discussion. And we have to ask ourselves, this in terms of a scenario, what if America chooses to withdraw from the level of commitment and engagement and forced deployment and investment that they have made? Who do we turn to to defend ourselves then? The answer is, it has to be ourselves, right. and therefore we have to make those investments. Yeah, we have to have some self-reliance. Uh, Mr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate you joining us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.